from the Medical Republic, this is Holly Payne with The Tea Room. For the last two years, we've been virtually inundated with information on how to avoid the coronavirus, but there hasn't been much conversation around what to do when we actually get sick with the virus. I'm joined on the podcast today by Bond University Assistant Professor of General Practice, Dr. Natasha Yates. Natasha, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Holly. Thanks for having me. So Scott Morrison and, you know, some state health bodies as well have strongly urged people managing COVID at home to contact their GP. Practices have been inundated with calls. Dr. Yates, have you had many patients contacting you directly? We've had so many patients contacting us that our phones literally melted down and we had several hours where we couldn't receive or send phone calls at all. So um, I think that's a combination of everyone trying to contact us to tell us they had COVID plus people wanting vaccines and boosters and and paediatric vaccines as well. Um, It is a really intense time at the moment in general practice. Yeah, I bet. Um, That's certainly consistent with what I've been hearing from lots of other GPs. So a big question, which I've seen um, some of our readers asking is, when do we escalate one of our patients with COVID? How sick is too sick? Yeah, such an important question. And I think probably the the big thing that we're all struggling with a little bit at the moment is the massive 180 that we've had to do uh, as GPs, but also as a whole community about what COVID means um, to us, because we've spent months and months and, you know, more than a year realising how um, this disease kills people, um, clogs up hospital systems, um, can make people very unwell, can lead to long COVID. And that push um, has been to to, to vaccinate, um, has been to try to prevent all that from happening. And then, of course, um, Omicron um, means that just the sheer volume of people catching COVID has been overwhelming. And despite all our best plans um, and all our best efforts, we just are not able to uh, physically see and look after every single person who catches COVID. And that's a really big mind shift for me as a GP, but also for our community, who, of course, have been um, well trained to recognise that COVID is not just a common cold um, and that this is something that you don't just ignore and you certainly don't go out and spread to other people. But now we're trying to um, deal with large numbers of people who have COVID. So as a GP, I think um, we firstly have to just recognise that there is a shift that's happened. Um, We need to look at our own capacity. What can we physically do um, without burning ourselves out? Because of course, uh, if we start to burn ourselves out physically, mentally, emotionally, uh, we are then leaving our colleagues um, to pick up our workload as well. And it's interesting that um, there are some GPs who say that they would like every single patient of theirs who tests positive with COVID, even if the home tests, they would like them to let them know. Um, But they seem to be the exception rather than the rule. A lot of GPs who are already flat out, um, very busy, have indicated to me that they would actually prefer the the population and, and community gets trained a little bit better to know who should actually contact them and when they should contact them. I guess that kind of 
goes back to which patients should GPs, I guess, be keeping an eye out if they know, um, for instance, baby patients who've recently had an organ transplant um, will therefore have that lower level of immunity. Um, that point of escalation um, is is what seems to be, I guess, worrying a lot of of doctors Mm, yeah yeah and so it really does pay to know what your local capacity is Um, I work on the Gold Coast and it's very recently like within the last few days that we've had the capacity to refer patients um, on to get uh, some of the extra treatment that they might some of the intravenous treatment um, that they can get so uh, I know that in some places that's been available for a very long time. There's some very clear pathways and GPs obviously need to be aware of what's available. But just as a, a general rule, um, we do want higher risk patients um, to be able to access support at the very least and, and perhaps some um, interventions. And there are some quite clear parameters around that. So people who are over 65 years of age um, or if they are um, of Indigenous um um, heritage and um, or Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander um, heritage, they can um, that that's more fifty years and over. Um, people who are pregnant, um, people who are immunocompromised, um, so that may be actively getting cancer treatment or maybe on medications that suppress your immune system, um, and actually people who are unvaccinated um, actually fall under this category as well, or partially vaccinated. Maybe they've only had one vaccine, um, that, that's still considered unvaccinated for the sake of getting getting notified Uh, and then the diseases the comorbidities that we um, as GPs already know put our patients at higher risk things like um, liver disease kidney disease heart disease diabetes um, obesity so all patients who fall under those categories um, there is most health pathways will have um, clear guidance that they really should be at least escalated yeah, and so you were able to refer patients um, on to get some of those IV treatments like the map. you were saying. Yeah, that's right. So that's really only in the last few days that's been possible. Um, in fact, I spent last night when I came home from work um, filling out paperwork to escalate a, a child or a 13-year-old patient for that. Um, and I should have said, sorry, I did say um, the older age group, but also the younger age group, paediatric patients do fit under that as well it doesn't mean that they'll necessarily get um, uh, any treatments but they certainly should be known to the the public health unit and and have at least virtual monitoring um, by by the health department Another question I've kind of seen floating around is, is pericarditis a risk for the young boys who are getting vaccinated with the pediatric rollout or... Such a great question because um, vaccinating children has been a, a much more difficult kind of discussion than vaccinating even adolescents. Um, I have children in the 5 to 11-year-old age group as well as teenagers, and for me it was an easy decision to get the teenagers vaccinated. Um, 
but the children, it's been much more difficult um, for me to come to that decision personally. And I know that um, the community has struggled with that as well. But really, we are so lucky here in Australia that uh, we can look at data being uh, rolled out from many other countries. So the US, um, Israel, Canada, um, the UK has not vaccinated all of their their five to 11 year olds, they vaccinated their higher risk. So I actually looked very closely at this data for weeks um, before um, really coming to my own decision on that. Uh, and the very reassuring thing about vaccines in this age group is that the risks of side effects are so incredibly low. Um, you're, you're talking, you know, one in 8 million um, having serious kind of myocarditis, pericarditis. Uh, and if you compare that to the rates of pericarditis, myocarditis from COVID itself, uh, it's, it's much lower. Um, and I, I understand that parents hesitate to get vaccines for this age group because their risk of actually becoming very unwell is so low. But at the end of the day, um, this is a disease that will affect the children, if not physically, it's affecting them psychosocially with all the adults around them um, getting sick, missing out on work, um, and they're not them not being able to go to school um, or, or having school delayed as it's been here in Queensland. My, my kind of take on it is this is something that kids can actually do to help bring a little bit less viral load in the community and therefore hopefully we'll get back to a kind of new normal quicker. Um, that, that's kind of where I've fallen on the whole discussion. Anecdotally as well, I've seen people um, kind of saying to uh, or advising people to stock up on things like Panadol. Um, is that sound advice? What can you say to a patient who's maybe called up and they have just very mild symptoms, um, but, you know, they're worried? Mm. Um, yeah, great. So I actually um, wrote an article in the conversation about this because it's such a common question and I was actually on holidays and friends kept on calling me and I thought you know what um, I, I jumped on to try to find information it was so confusing because every state had different recommendations and then sometimes it was contradictory even on the same website so I thought you know what I'm gonna sit and try to get my head around this all and and um, actually put it into an article and what I've been doing now since I've been back at work I've actually just been talking through the details from that article with with patients um, which I've found actually helps structure those conversations and it also gives them a resource um, they can use themselves. Um, so the, the article is actually titled, I've tested positive to COVID, what should I do now? And the question about um, Panadol and Nurofen, um, actually they are absolutely fine and safe to take, but only if you need them. Um, they're not going to, obviously we know they're not going to affect the course of the disease at all, but if they make you feel a bit better and, and certainly help you to be able to, to um, keep up your fluids and eat um, and not feel terrible, then definitely um, treat the symptoms. Um, there are a few other things that it's really handy to have on hand, if possible, um, pulse oximeters. And I'm actually surprised at the number of patients who've already got their hands on these. Um, you can order them online fairly cheaply. And it's a very handy thing um, to have because one of the, the key parameters we can use when we, we're talking with people in their homes about how unwell they are is what their oxygen saturations are so if they can check that on a home oxygen monitor a home sats monitor and that gives us an objective measure 
Um, we all know that people can feel breathless because they're anxious or panicky. Um, but if, if their SATs are low, then we know that actually that's from the underlying um, pathophysiology. Um, I should just say here, um, a lot of our patients do have smartwatches and they will ask, well, can I use my smartwatches oxygen? And unfortunately, um, research has quite clearly shown that it's not uh, sensitive enough to do that. So they do need um, to have a, a monitor, a probe that they pop on their fingers. Um, so having having a little pack is actually a good idea. And in fact, I know on the Queensland Health website, I think um, it was probably on other state websites as well. It's just some suggestions, having a pack with some um, Panadol and Neurofendisats probe um, and a, a, a few other little things just to have on hand in case, well, for if and when you do um, need to self-isolate and self-monitor. Yeah, I guess having that oxygen monitor on hand is very helpful in pinpointing, um, you know, exactly how sick someone is. Because, um, yeah, I mean, how sick is too sick? When does someone go to a hospital? Exactly right, Holly. And, and this is such a difficult call to make. This is a new disease. Um, we've never treated this before. It's new to the community. They don't know what kind of those normal versus abnormal parameters are. Uh, and so I think we've, we've got to just acknowledge that we're all trying to learn as we go. Um, colleagues of mine who work in emergency find this tricky because they have a number of the patients who really shouldn't be turning up are, and a number of the patients who should be um, coming in because they are very unwell um, are staying away worried that they will be overburdening the system and I think we've we've got to realize there will be people who um, die at home or, or get very very sick at home who um, could have been seen earlier at, at, a, at an emergency department but they weren't um, because of their fear or or hopefully not because of our advice but that's a possibility as well in a situation like this. Well, Dr. Yates, thank you so much for chatting with me. Um, that's all I have. Is there anything I've missed or you'd like to add? I would just say, um, you know, as GPs, we ha will have a bit of whiplash at the moment from trying to keep on top of everything we're meant to be looking at and understanding. Um, so I think we need to um, become familiar with the resources that are out there because the resources are things that we can point patients too and the Health Direct website is a federal resource. Um, there's some great resources put out um, by on the GPs CAN website if you just look up GPs hyphen CAN. Um, the RECGP has quite a, a thorough and long document but it's also a great resource um, answering these questions as well. So if we, if we familiarise ourselves with those um, then we can keep on top of, of the changing information uh, and just cut ourselves a bit of slack as well. We're all exhausted. Um, we've never had to deal with this before. Um, we're constantly being told um, that we are the go-to people and that's really hard um, to have that weight on our shoulders. So let's look after each other as well um, and check in on each other too. Dr Yates, thank you. You've been listening to The Tea Room. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe, leave us a review if you like. 
The Tea Room's a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit our website where you can keep up to date with all the latest news and views. And while you're there, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. We love keeping you informed. Thanks for tuning in.